0: Your intuition tells you, say, what your purpose is or what you're really deeply passionate about. And then you should go make that your career. You should be paid for it. What I hold is that we all have a purpose. And I think deep down, we all know what that is. But I don't think our purpose is actually defined by the job that we do. I think it can be expressed through the job that we do, but it can also be expressed through our relationships. So my purpose is to ignite freedom. That's why I feel like I'm here. And I get to do that when I'm talking to a friend, I get to do that when I'm paying for my groceries, I get to do that in my role as a CEO. And I think we get caught a lot in, your purpose has to be your career.
1: Welcome to The Disrupted Workforce, where we help courageous professionals explore, expand and evolve in the future of work. Are you curious to understand how all these disruptions are changing how we work in our careers? trying to self-assess and build an actionable plan to thrive in the future of work, looking for research and insights from thought leaders to help you and your organization, then this is the show for you and you found your tribe. I'm Alex Schwartz. And I'm Nate Thompson. And we are your hosts. Welcome to TDW. We are so excited to have the CEO of Kripalu, Robert Mulhall, on the show today. Kripalu is the Center for Yoga and Health, which has been in business for over 50 years in Lenox, Massachusetts. And it's really special to me because for more than 20 years, it was the place that my dad sought refuge from his busy life and career in finance. And fun fact, I was about 11 years old when I walked in my father's office and I saw him standing on his head. And I said, dad, what the hell are you doing? And he said, I learned this at Kripalu. And so I would scratch my head. And this is, you know, way before there were Lululemons everywhere and, you know, yoga studios on every corner of every city. So my dad was an early adopter of of health and mindfulness. And uh, as much as I laughed at him then, I'm now the one meditating every day and doing breath work and jumping into ice baths. So thank you, dad. And thank you, Kripalu. Robert, you have over two decades of experience in very diverse industries, including public health, leadership development, education, finance, organizational consulting, and executive coaching, all of which have led you on your magic carpet to Kripalo. You are passionate about service and deeply curious about how people can facilitate sustainable transformation to enable more peace, justice, and freedom in our world. And I just love that. You're originally from Ireland. And you're certified in a lot of different things, public accounting for one, meditation, yoga, executive and life coaching, the Enneagram and Reiki. And your career has allowed you to cross both the public and private sector a few different times. You know, you were originally a manager at Price Waterhouse Coopers. We're proud of you for making it out. I feel like nobody ever leaves that place. And you were co-founder and CEO of an award-winning social enterprise, a director of programs For Concern Worldwide's Innovation Unit in partnership with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and UNICEF, which we will certainly get to, and a coaching consultant with the Crossland Group for business and organizations in fields such as human rights, banking, media, IT, well-being, and others. And that's what led you to Kripalu most directly. In a recent video during the reopening of Kripalu post-pandemic, you said, yoga teaches us that the individual transformation is not separate from the collective transformation. Kripalu is in the work of connection and remembering wholeness and unity. And that is just fantastic. So without further ado, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thanks. It's great to be here.
2: Robert, let's dive in with your unique background. I want to pull a specific thread. Traditionally, Careers have been you get involved in this one specific function, this one type of work in this one industry, and you go as deep as you can and as far as you can. And hopefully someday you end up with a whole lot of money with a big title. And that whole thing has been exploded, just shattered. Um, Certainly the the most recent chapter in that story is the pandemic, fundamentally changing career as we careen toward this future of work. But what's beautiful about your career is that on paper, it looks a heck of a lot more like an exploration than it does somebody who is trying to climb a traditional ladder. So was that intentional? Did you thoughtfully do that? Are you just way ahead of everybody else?
0: Uh, definitely not way ahead of everybody else. My father who's passed away, passed away uh, six and a half years ago. And he, he gave me a very beautiful piece of career advice when I was about 16 years old. And he just said, the secret to this whole thing is find out what you love, not what you, you, know, you like or even your passion because they're going to change, but what do you love deep in your bones and then go be good at that. And life is going to find ways to find you and to put you in places of service. So that combined with a natural adventurous spirit and a treating of career like a jungle gym to be explored rather than a ladder to be climbed. I'm pretty sort of intuitively wired up and I call them the whispers and the whispers just come and they say, okay, time to go do this or time to stop this and they look at that and I've been made a commitment that I would listen to those whispers and uh, follow through on them and they've led me to all of these different places. And I will say, I'm in a European-born, white, uh, heterosexual body, which also creates an incredible amount of privilege and door opening for me in our Westernized society.
2: Yes. Robert, whispers, if I can explore that for a second. Yeah. Uh, there's intuition, which is an intuitive knowing you can feel inside of your body. And then there's, I call it flirting. I'm trying to distinguish flirting sometimes is this the outside world, the universe kind of going, hey, here this thing is again. Hey, hello, over here. Here's this thing again. It are whispers both intuition and flirting from the
0: outside or what hey, is How it? does your wife feel about your flirting? <laughs> she knows. <laughs> um, they're the same thing. They just show up in different ways. That's how I would hold it. And uh, because I also hold a worldview that there is the, that all of life is held in an inseparability that everything is bound up together. So, but the, the whispers have literally been working at Price Reliance Coopers, which I entered, with a very specific sort of goal in mind and timeline in mind, but uh, sitting at my desk and I had co-founded this social enterprise and sitting at my desk, typing away very happily, loving working in that organization. The role I was doing was pretty unique. And then this whisper just said, time to quit, time to go run the social enterprise full-time. Like, okay, so within three months that I had done that. Wow. And another time when I moved to India to do some of that, humanitarian work my first week there i was sitting on the edge of the hotel bed where i was staying before i could find uh, accommodation and i heard this whisper it says new york and africa are next wow okay and a year and a half later my uh, boss called me and said we're not going to do any more expansion of the work in india it's exactly where it needs to be I said, okay, do you need me to resign? Like, what do we need to do here? And she said, no, I want you to come to New York and support all of the expansion to Africa. Okay, that's what that was. (laughs) Let's go do that. Wow.
2: Yeah. Um, Can I pull one other thread on this, which is a lot of people are in the place where they have chosen to prioritize money over intuitive knowing. And would you just speak to that for a second of, yeah, there, money is a factor and we all need to live and we all need to pay our bills and put food on the tables, et cetera. But there is something really powerful about listening to your intuition.
0: Yeah, I think often we get into this sort of binary of your intuition tells you, say, what your purpose is or what you're really deeply passionate about. And then you should go make that your career. You should be paid for it. What I hold is that we all have a, a purpose. And I think deep down, we all know what that is. We often don't slow down enough to really, really hear it or to live from it. But I don't think our purpose is actually defined by the job that we do. I think it can be expressed through the job that we do, but it can also be expressed through our relationships. It can literally be expressed moment to moment. So my purpose is to ignite freedom. That's why I feel like I'm here. And I get to do that. When I'm talking to a friend, I get to do that when I'm paying for my groceries. I get to do that when I'm driving the car by myself. I get to do that in my role as a CEO. And I think we get caught a lot in your purpose has to be your career. But you hear some of these incredible examples of people. This beautiful story of JFK. I have no idea if it's true or not. But the Irish people don't care if stories are true, as long as they're good stories. <laughs> so he, he's down in Cape Canaveral at the space sort of station there. And he walks around and he asks everybody, what do you do here? And they all introduce him, like, I'm Dr. Miller and I'm the chief scientist. I'm Dr. Fitzpatrick and I'm the chief engineer. And then he's walking out and there's a custodian there who's mopping the floor. And he says, what do you do? And he says, I help put men on the moon. And that person had such an incredible sense of connection to why he was there. And it didn't matter so much that what, what position he held the power of his presence would have been profound just because he knew that sort of sense of connection to purpose. I'll also say there's a lot of complexity in all of this. Again, I'm in a place of privilege in our westernized society, so I get to, and I have a big social safety net, Right, I have a family that really loves me that isn't particularly wealthy family, but if I need to, the worst thing that happens in my life, apart from death, is that I lose my job and I go sleep in my friend's spare bedroom or my family's spare bedroom for six months until I get my feet back on the ground. The vast, vast, vast majority of the world doesn't have that safety net, either from government or from of community. So sometimes I think we can get into this, oh, if you're not following your intuition, you're somehow li- living your life um, badly, or you're making poor choices, you're prioritizing the wrong things. I used to hold those kind of views as well, but I try to hold a real soft compassion around it now and in a deep appreciation that I've been privileged enough and brave enough to sort of follow those whispers. I love the
1: mission to ignite freedom. I think that's beautiful and succinct and very, very clear. And a big focus for us is is leading leaders. And you've done a lot of work coaching leaders through change at Crossland, at Kripalu. And change is really different now, right? In the past a lot of leaders focused on their function, but didn't really own or know how to be a change leader. And from our perspective, every leader now must be a change leader. So from the place where you stand, from your experience, from the mission of Ignite Freedom, what stands out for you in doing this work of leading leaders? And what are some of the biggest
0: challenges of this work? Yeah, there's plenty of challenges. And, There's lots of people writing lots of leadership books, but I don't think anybody's really (laughs) written the book. So it doesn't feel like there's a playbook because there's this evolutionary sort of energy that's just happening. Like like literally our physical planets are just unfolding. And I feel like we're unfolding in that way. So everything is constantly, we're leading change in the midst of constant change. So often I, I reflect on a couple of things is I sort of see myself as an acupuncturist as best I can. My job is not to actively lead so much unless there's real specific moments where it's needed, but to continue to sort of put the acupuncture needles in the places where the flow is blocked so that it can create constant flow in the system. And I feel like I'm doing a good job when people are looking at me going, what do you actually do? Like, what do you actually do? I think there should be a sense of that in the team. I don't think CEOs should be hanging back and doing nothing, but there should be a sense of like, it's not fully clear what the tangible piece of work is that you do, because I think people at the tops of organizations, I hope that they're tending to the real subtle leading that needs to go on and um, for organizations to really thrive and be successful. In addition to that, a lot of people ask me, what is my vision for Karpalu or um, any other organization I've worked with? And My answer, it may change in a week's time, but right now is is that I don't have a personal vision for for Kapala. And I think sometimes we get in trouble when individual leaders have personal visions because they stay for a while and then they leave. And then another leader comes in and then it's another personal vision and it's twist and turn and twist and turn for the organization's direction all the time. And so there's the beautiful, I think it's from Lao Tzu, maybe um, Confucius, but it's at the end of the day, when the work is done, let the people say we did it ourselves. And for me, I remember being in Northern Ireland at a, a sort of a retreat around peace in Northern Ireland, and there was a woman from Baltimore, and Obama was coming up the ranks, and there was a little chatter about him. And she said, beware the the hole that a charismatic leader leaves, because they sort of shine very brightly, and then they leave. And then it's very hard for that sort of shining to sustain itself if it's been based around an individual. And so I'm constantly in this dance myself as a person. It's like, how much do I lean in and sort of set tone, direction, and shaping? And then how much do I lean lean out and allow others to really fill that? And others being the humans here, but also the land that we're stewards of. We bring the land into this conversation and ask the land what it wants to happen when we do our strategy work, et cetera. So there are some of the personal pieces that I dance with as a leader right now for the challenges. it's The pandemic has just lifted the lid on what was already there, which was a mental health crisis in the United States and um, uh, sort of overburdened humanity with stress and anxiety. Like people can say they switch it off and they leave it in the car, but nobody does. It's there. It's bubbling. It's in the system all the time. And so... Trying to help people feel well at work is something that I think about a lot and also don't really feel like I've got a really great answer for. a lot of things we're trying and testing here at the organization, but it feels like it's a really, really big challenge that's way bigger than what one organization can do. And I don't really feel like anybody's talking about it in a cohesive way, except for that it's a problem, as opposed to here's how we're going to have a sort of a, like a matrixed solution to it, and then the other thing is big piece around equity. And you know, we've got incredible people working at Kapalu. We've over three hundred staff, and everybody's earning at different levels. And some of our folks work two jobs because they have to. And I don't know how to fix that and sustain the organization. And you know, we're a nonprofit, so we we operate in a in a slightly different way to for profits. In what's what's the priority and. Yes, to be honest, sometimes it's really heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to not be able to know how to solve that problem. And so I think that's a big part of leading is being willing to be in deep discomfort and in deep uncertainty and mystery and to not feel like it's all my fault.
2: Such a shift. So you're representing a powerful shift in leadership. The old way was leader knows best, leader commands and control. Leader tells people what to do. Leader fixes the problem. Leader saves the day. Go, leader. Right. But that thing, that vacuum you're talking about is well, if the leader has all the answers, then you've effectively disabled the people. Everyone just turns and looks and says, well, tell me what to do, leader. And what you're modeling is I'm here to be helpful. I'm here to have empathy and I'm here to hold space and I'm here to facilitate an inclusive, beautiful conversation, but I am not here to tell you what to do. You know, I'll guide when needed, but we've got to enable people to rise, to listen to their own voice.
1: I love the notion of you as a, an acupuncturist. I think that was very well said and conceived and also the the anecdote about what happens when a charismatic leader leaves. I think that brings a lot of your philosophy to life about wanting to not leave a hole in any way, shape, or form. Not that you're going anywhere in this moment, but not wanting to leave a hole if, if you were to leave the organization and leading from that place
0: a bit, a bit softer. Yeah. One of the questions that one of my mentors shared with me kind of when I started out in my career was don't focus on how are you doing as a leader. Just bring all of your attention all the time back to what is needed here. And so you won't waste your energy on how am I doing, which can, you can spin yourself out into shame and fear and good, bad, comparing, contrasting, all that. All that energy will go there and you won't necessarily just be tending to what needs to happen. So primary question his, he said was just, what is needed here? What is needed here? And stay focused on that. And so that means sometimes it's about creating all this space for others to lead fully and to own fully. And then other times it's their max they don't feel like they can give more. So now it's your turn to lean in and bring the energy or the juice to the direction of the clarity.
2: Robert, let's take that and expand that piece of the conversation with something that you did beautifully when you took over. So for context, TDW Tribe, Robert takes over Kripalu in 2021 during a global pandemic in the midst of massive external change And you you go to your people, your clients, your staff, your employees, and you start to ask the question of what is coming up for you now? What do you care about? Where do you want to see Kripalu go in this unfolding future? Um, Where I think a, a lot of leaders batten down the hatches and lock the doors and close the windows to try to survive this thing. You went outward and didn't say, I have this vision. We should go this direction. You started to ask questions. What do people want need? What are some
1: of the things that you heard? Let, let me just build on one thing to make it very clear to folks. Kripalu is a destination. You go there. This is during the pandemic. You guys were fully shut down, 90 plus percent of the revenue gone, and you're there to ask these provocative questions, hold the line. And give people the optimism and hope not only that Kripalu
0: would reopen, but how would it be better and stronger when it did? Yeah. So we, we, when we shut our doors in March, 2020, it was sort of a week before the governor of Massachusetts shut everything down and we kept our staff. So we, our revenue, 96% of our revenue comes from people attending on physical site. So 96% of the revenue disappeared overnight. We had technically about 480 staff on the books, not all of them full-time. And we kept them on for three months trying to sustain them because we knew that some could work remotely and then many couldn't. So we wanted to try and be, take an equitable approach to that. And then after three months, the pandemic was not going anywhere. So we had to make hard decisions. And we let 450 of those 480 go. Wow. We went to a team of 30. And you can imagine how heartbreaking that experience was for everybody. We went to a team of 30 and for 17 months, we were closed. We put everything online and that helped us, but it was a pinch compared to what is needed to run this organization and this building, which is, you know, can technically sleep 700 people and we're on 125 acres. So we have a lot of, you just blink and it's costing you money. And so that was, that's all true. And that's all the context. And then when I took over as CEO, I said to the board, I said, you have to be comfortable with the fact that I might be the last CEO. Because we don't know where this is going. And what I think we should do is just be ourselves. I think we should be completely and truly who we are as an organization in our DNA. We should let go of the places where we are trying to imitate others and just come back to our center and come back to our sort of our core. And and we said we're going to do that and we're going to be different when we reopen the doors. And so we, we spoke, we, like you said, we were talking to a lot of people and really trying to sense into individual minds, but also the like the field, like what is happening here? And the pandemic was happening. George Floyd's murder happened. All of these things were happening. And it became deeply clear that and we had gone through a strategic process in 2020 that was influenced by the, those things and was like a real affirmation that what we needed to do when we emerged was that we needed to hold individual and collective transformation as one purpose, not something that's separate because those things are not separate from each other and they never have been, they can't be separated. Um, and that we needed to become a radically accessible organization because this, these wisdom traditions, this these tools, these resources and what they offer people in their lives in my mind are everyone's birthright. And they're not just for those that have or those that can afford, or those that are close to Lennox And they should be available to everybody in the most accessible way while trying to run and sustain an organization. So we made a couple of internal promises to ourselves, and then we said those promises out loud and to hold ourselves sort of publicly accountable. And we've, we've just been living into it. And it has not been easy. Um, at times it's been incredibly hard, not just for me, but for many people in the organization as we were opening things up and it was very hard to hire staff back and we were changing all of the things that we were doing and how we were doing it because uh, my dad said this as well. He said, when you become a leader of an organization, the first 12 months is the period when you get to change pretty much anything you want. After that, the sort of, the openness, the aperture starts to close for how much people have an appetite for change. So we said, okay, we're going to use these first 12 months to change as much as we possibly could and it really felt like we changed almost everything and that has now positioned us really nicely with our strategy Um, and we've just you know completed a financial year that has felt healthy and good and we're going into 2023 with some real optimism about oh what we're doing feels really right like it feels aligned with the organization's DNA it feels aligned with the world's needs and people are responding
2: Uh, Let me pull out some of these, and I uh, correct me if I don't say these right, but these are massive shifts in an organization. So one of them is that we don't want to be a place of privilege anymore. We want to open this thing up and be inclusive. Another is it's not just going to be physical on site anymore. We're going to continue to offer this digital opportunity to build community. Another one is we're going to lift up different voices, so it used to be a certain, certain types of voices. Now we're going to expand that into other voices like BIPOC voices. And then you even have a, a activist in residence program. I mean, you have teacher programs, but this is a very different kind of program. This is a change maker program. And so you also shift from the idea that individual or personal transformation is our focus. And you say, no, no, no. Those are one and the same individual transformation, societal transformation. It's a we thing. And these are... Massive
0: changes for an organization. <laughs> yeah. And we did them all all at the same time. And we knew why we did that was we, we kept saying it. The world is fundamentally changed because of the pandemic. If we are not fundamentally changed, we're going to sort of drift away. That other places will emerge to meet the reality of the world. And if we're not meeting the reality of the world, we won't be relevant. We won't be important. We won't be actually meeting the needs. And we said we had to do it all at the same time because everyone was like, well, can we do this one two years after we open or this one six months after we open? And we kept coming back to this organization has a, and a bit like many, many other organizations has an ability to just take up as much time and space as it needs. So we could have opened and not changed anything and we'd be as busy as we are with all of these change initiatives as well. And we said, right, if we don't do it now, it's never going to get done. That was the feeling. And so we just said, we have to go through that storm now. And we went through it and it was stormy and hard. And not everybody wanted to stay along for the ride. And that's also what happens in transformation. And that's okay. Um, and so for me, it was, a, it was a lot of resting in a place of trust that this is right. And just because it's hard, doesn't mean failures happening. And now we're in a we're in a, diff, a different place. And we've got these like all the, a lot of the changes we wanted to make, the foundational changes are done. So the ship is sort of like is heading in a direction that feels right and aligned. And now we get to do some more of the sort of additive work and the cosmetic work on top of that. But the, the foundations of the roots are there, which just makes it much easier to do all the extra pieces we want to do now. And it literally like there's a great boon from the pandemic, there's great suffering from the pandemic for us but it was a great boon in this as well that we i don't know if i as the ceo would have been able to do this or would have had the risk tolerance or the courage to do this in a normal operating way you know it was what have we got to lose like this whole thing could take us over the edge anyway so let's just come back to the most beautiful version of ourselves and there was a used to talk about we didn't know if we were building castles or sandcastles we didn't know if this was a permanent structure that might last for a thousand years or the, the shore was going to come in and just take it away. The tide was going to take it away. There's a, a group up here from a few hundred years ago called uh, the Shakers, the Hancock Shakers. They make beautiful furniture. They used to be connected to the Quaker religious movement, but they, the Quakers are very still and silent. and The Shakers like, were more ecstatic and they would move when they prayed. So they started their own community. And they were a group that had a sort of a doomsday prophecy, like the end of the world is coming. And even in their last year, when they believed the world was going to end, they still made beautiful furniture. I remember hearing that story going, we have no idea if this is all going to end next month. But while we're here, let's make beautiful furniture. Like, yeah. Let's make the best furniture we can. And let's just see what happens. Because Buddhism and yoga teaches us about impermanence all the time. and Sometimes you're so fixed on keeping something as opposed to just being in the flow of what's actually happening, that you lose the the creativity, the magic, the beauty that's possible when you let go of that. This has to survive. And you just enter into a field of, this may or may not survive, but we can do beautiful work while it's here. Love that. This moment of, if not
1: now, then when? And the ability to be... A bit of a kite in the wind, but at the same time, grabbing the string of that kite and saying, let's, let's
0: fly this thing as high as we can. Yeah. And it's been a real stretch, like a real stretch at times. And it's all so, it's so fulfilling. And times I've cried so many times in my office. Was, was most of that
1: knowing that you were going to do a podcast with us today or? I just had this, I had a whisper <laughs> two years ago and I was like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> It was a whisper.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it was flirting, Nate. It was <laughs> Yeah. The, uh, but it was uh the, the sort of the suffering has come from me feeling like this is all my this is all my job. And something beautiful happened in Omnicron. When Omnicron was happening, it just hurt us so bad this time last year. It was such a different month. It was just so at the beginning of the month it was so painful. And I've got a little um Superhero that lives in the middle of my sort of solar plexus area, and he puts on a little cape, and he goes when something's happening. He puts on the cape, and he gets to work, and he's really, really, really effective. He's like supercharged. He can actually move mountains. He's had sort of like life evidence of this. He can move mountains around. And when Omicron was hitting, I was sitting in my office, and I could feel him sort of getting dressed. He went into the phone booth and like got on the the blue and red, and got the cape on. And I just went, I'm just not doing it this way. Like, please just don't let me do it this way. This is a pattern. I'm 42 now. That was whatever, 41. Please let me find a new way to do this. Please let me find a new way to lead. And so I sat here and uh, feeling that. And then I said, okay. And I drew a piece of paper on the desk and I put a line down the middle. It was like my side, your side. And your side was spirit, God, source, whatever. And I have personal sort of definitions around that. On my side, I wrote down: make a plan with my leadership team, align that plan with the board's expectations, execute on that plan, and like iterate as needs be. On the other side, I wrote down outcome, and I said my job is to come up with a plan and to move the plan forward with the team. Your job is to determine the outcome. By the way, my preference is that Carpalo survives and we all do great. In case uh, that matters, but I am not going to hold the responsibility or the energetic burden of delivering on this outcome. I'm just going to deliver on the plan. And if it's not, if the plan is turns out to be the wrong plan, so be it. Or if the plan, it was fated to not work out, so be it. And we did that and it, we're still here. Is that hard for you to let go of results in that way? <laughs> so hard. <laughs> <Like>. <laughs> Uh, so if you've ever studied in the Enneagram, I, I type as a number three on the Enneagram. It's nickname is the achiever or the performer. And um, the kind of core wound of that is that I, at some young age, I've confused admiration for love. So if I'm not being admired for what I do, then I don't feel like I'm going to get love. So to my nervous system, it is terrifying to let go of outcome and the control of outcome because failure for somebody... With the three typing is not an option. And so it's a total counter move to how I'm wired up um, at a sort of nervous system level. And that's, uh, I'm also like, look, if I'm going to be doing this work, I'm going to use this work to stretch myself and grow myself. Like this is university. This is showing me and teaching me. And it's a, it's like an incredible lab for exploring my inner nature. and catalyzing my own freedom. It's beautiful.
1: And you're talking a lot about this, this art of surrender. And the last time we chatted, you talked about another artful way of being at work. And you talked about using the L word at work, which is love. And, you know, Nate and I, we go back and forth on this quite often. And This sense that in the workplace now, so many people do not feel seen. So many people feel that work is broken and they're looking for more love, for more gratitude, for more appreciation. And some organizations are arguably colder than ever. And you're bringing love to Kripalo. So talk to us about how that has come up, how it's been used. Where do you feel like? It's appropriate, and
0: when does it not serve an organization to bring love into the mix? Uh, it's a tricky one. I'll just say, like, Karpalu is an incredible place for permission for this. Karpalu means compassionate in Sanskrit, so in its DNA is this expression of love. We use the word compassion a lot, which is a beautiful, powerful word, and sometimes it feels like the sort of the safe version of the L word, and so. I've been specifically using the L word intentionally to because I'm I like to rattle cages a little bit in a in a good way. Somebody called me a I'm a velvet hammer. <laughs> I will talk about it at a town hall. I will talk about love and that's what we're here to do. We're here to love each other. We're here to love ourselves. We're here to love the guests that come here. Like why else would a guest come to Krapallo except for to be seen fully in their wholeness, not in their brokenness? Maybe that's the greatest gift we'll give them. Not It won't be in a, in a yoga class. It will be the person at the front desk who looks into their eyes and says, welcome. But they see them as a whole human being. Maybe that's the first time in somebody's life where they actually feel fully seen in their wholeness and fully welcome in their wholeness. Love for me is the thing that moves everything, it transforms everything, and it sustains everything. And I don't understand why we're so shy about this. We say we love everything all the time. We use that word like incorrectly all the time. We say, Oh, I love donuts. You're like, Well, I don't know if we love donuts. I, I know you like donuts. I, got... I do love donuts. I stand corrected. That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> but you get my point. And I do. yeah, but it's, uh, we had our holiday party yesterday and I grabbed this. This is one of the things for, and I'm putting that up in my office or I'm putting it on the door to my office. It's, I love you. Yes, you. And that's, As much for me as it is for anybody else that will walk past it, you know the people that have have moved the world in big ways—Gandhi, King, Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman. These people, the whole thing has been love. Like it's it's everything that that they stand for, and I think we—it's so perplexing that we're so shy to use this word that we use all the time in a work setting. I think so. We talk about it like, can we love each other? Can we can we love our the guests that come here. And I subtly hold it when people are struggling in front of me, whether it's any of my direct reports or leaders, or they're just having, they're showing up in a way that I wouldn't exactly want them or need them to show up in. And it's like, okay, well, th- this is not somebody who's being a jerk. This is somebody who's like in pain. And what does somebody who's in pain need is love? And so can we hold that sense of love? without even saying it, can we just hold a loving sense towards the person in front of us? And I was with a group of leaders that went to India in October and we had a private audience with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And one of the questions that we asked was, you know, what does the world need? And This is, this is all he said. He just said the world needs people to live with compassion in their hearts and to hold a knowing that we are brothers and sisters and that we're not separate from each other. And if we can really live that, then we've got a chance of um, having a very different kind of world. That's fantastic. I think it's inappropriate, obviously, when there isn't a sort of a a relational setup um, and it's somebody coming up to somebody random in the organization saying, I love you, or somebody coming up to a guest and saying, I love you. But there's no context or communication or permission around, consent around any of these things. So at that individual level, it gets much trickier. um, And and we need to be careful because these things can also be abused, uh, for sure. We have lots of, unfortunately, lots of evidence around it. That was
2: so well said. The difference between having this word and the spirit, this space in context versus out of context or even inappropriately. That's the distinction right there, right? You can hold that space. It just needs to be set up well and framed well and have some boundaries. Um, One thing I'll share is um, as a, a practitioner of change work, one simple exercise was... Lining up two rows of people and just asking the group to look into each other's eyes and say, I love you. Nothing else. There's no other conversation. Just hold the eye contact and say, I love you. And something so powerful happens because it's so rare that that interaction is shared. Almost immediately, people start to cry. It's not only because of sharing that moment, but the feelings that fill the body of. I needed this. I needed this moment. And then sometimes it's even more powerful depending on the person who crosses paths. So the line keeps moving. And you say it again. I love you. The line moves again. And there's a, there's a space where it's fascinating to watch. Two people who have never thought they would have this unbelievable moment will just look into each other's eyes and say, I love you. And instantly, just this emotion pours out of them. It's so powerful. And I know some people would say you could never do something like that at work. In fact, we've been doing more and more vulnerability work. Brene Brown lives in shame work, right? There's so much progress in this space around opening the heart inside of the workplace. So I, I just love what you're doing and, and holding
0: that for the team. Yeah, and it, this 100% can be done at work yes. like as a consultant. I did this. And there are the amount of organizations that are so hungry for this. People are waiting for people to come into the room and facilitate stuff like this. They need it. Not not everybody in the room is going to be like a hell yes to it. But there's a hunger in our world for this work in this way.
1: I have a therapist I've been seeing on and off for years. And one of her mentors gave her this, that when a problem comes up, whether it's a situation or an interpersonal problem, Uh, This person said to her, well, have you tried throwing any love at it? Try throwing some love at it. Yeah. And she said, you know, for her own life, it's been transformational and she's shared it out to all of her clients. And, you know, I've, I've, I've come up against those things. And now it's in, you know, somewhere in the, you know, the cortex of my brain. And every once in a while, I'm able to
0: be mature enough to access that. (laughs) Somebody said, no matter the question, love is the answer. Yes. Cool. I like that one.
2: So to me, love is the most powerful force in the universe. It is a infinite in its supply. We can use it anytime, anywhere. It can be given, it can be received, it can be held, it can be shared, it can be. It's this ultimate resource. And yet, we, to your point, have found a way to sort of try to not use it or put it inside of a box and say, oh, oh, oh only, only this little tiny time you can use this most powerful resource in the universe. So it is
0: kind of the ultimate opportunity for us as leaders. And I think that that approach to it is comes from a real scarcity mindset. You know, we shouldn't use it because we're run out of it. It's like a misunderstanding that there's somehow a limit to the amount of love in the world. I think that scarcity mindset and also... I think a lot of the resistance to love is just a, a feeling of we're not worthy of love, and which we all, are like human beings, we've all internalized that story and it shows up in some way that we're, we're just not worthy of love. So let's not confront the hard fact and confirm that truth.
2: Am I loved? Am I enough? Is two of the deepest questions any human will ever ask themselves. Am I worthy of love? Am I enough? And then the idea that how deeply we need that. Failure to thrive is what happens in babies when they're not loved, when they're not touched, when they're not held, when they're not connected with. And I think it's fascinating that we're only now getting to the place where we're starting to go. We can share this vital thing in all aspects of our lives instead of withhold it into these tiny little windows.
1: I was going to just add that in this year, we're looking at a trend, which we're calling AI everywhere. And it just seems to be abundantly clear that AI going mainstream in a way that it never has before is happening now. And we talk a lot on this show about what are the things that we as humans can do that technology doesn't do well and what are our superpowers. And love is front and center. And we talked to Sherry Turkle about this uh, last summer, and she's an expert on robots and robot caregiving and everything else she's been all over it for decades and really hammered home just how important it is for us to recognize that love is not something we ever want to outsource to technology and so bringing love into the workplace in the moment where more and more technology is coming into workplace and the technology that is coming in is more and more advanced that is uniquely human
0: and uniquely beautiful Right on.
2: Robert, our focus at TDW is to help people to understand the magnitude of these disruptions. The disruptions that you were just talking about, your organization and your people going through and how they're impacting the future of work. And you've even said in this episode, it's undeniable. This is happening. The world is unfolding. It's rapidly changing around us. And what we strive to do is help our listeners. We call them the TDW tribe, prepare and thrive. And so what would you say, given all your transformation work, given what you've gone through with Kripalu, given how you've bravely explored this unfolding landscape, what advice would you give to our listeners
0: about preparing and thriving in 2023? Good question. Somebody asked me the other day, They said, what's your grade for self-care? And I said, a non-negotiable A. and. I believe that if you're going to try to take on something big, that your self care has to be an A grade, because otherwise it's gonna it's gonna cause a lot of pain, and that won't be it won't be sustainable. I think we're living in very uncertain times, and I believe that we're going to just live in even deeper uncertainty. I think that is what is the sort of the new shift that's we've just been invited into as a humanity. Completely agree, and so people figuring out how they can stay in their center, in their wisdom, and in their love, in uncertainty. For me, that is. there's a few ways of doing that. It is about a a sitting practice of silence and meditation that allows me to stay incredibly grounded. Then practices that open my heart, and those are three at the moment. One is singing, the other one is dancing, and the final one is staying in relationship Regard, you know, whatever the form of the relationship, staying in relationship when it's messy, as opposed to retreating to like figure stuff out. And I think nature, even if you're not a nature person, there is something about nature that is incredibly supportive. And literally, in my experience, has answers for us. It has wisdom for us. You can go to what my ancestors did in Ireland. You would go to trees and you would ask them questions and seek advice. And if you're you're slow enough and quiet enough, you might hear something. Um, and then the final thing is we're not prioritizing fun. We're kind of prioritizing. There's a lot of people having a lot of fun, but there's something about fun that we're not prioritizing in life. And I think because things are so hard, because the Everests that we collectively need to climb feel so big that there's a, there's a sort of a sense of despair that's creeping into a lot of the, people who are leading change and we have to remember that we're also here to have fun this is the Dalai Lama said all of this he said we need to think about taking the war out of the world we need to take, think about the climate we talked about all the big things and his last thing was he says you're here as a human being you're supposed to be enjoying yourself and I just encourage everybody say it here all the time it's like can we just have more fun together can we just have more fun because we're all doing beautiful work and it's hard it takes effort. So let's have some more fun. What a fantastic answer. Yes.
1: Love that. So we like to do a speed round at the end of the show where we ask you a few questions and see if you can answer ideally in 30 seconds or less. So Nate, why don't you kick us off?
2: When and where do you feel the most at ease? Name a specific
0: place or activity. Glendalock. It's known as the Valley of the Two Lakes in County Wicklow in Ireland. It is my uh, true spiritual home. Fantastic.
1: For anyone that's looking to begin a mindfulness practice, where do
0: you recommend that they start? (laughs) www.kipalu.org. Fantastic.
2: (laughs) Okay, let's take that one a step further. Kripalu is so powerful in person, yet we're living in an increasingly digital world. And there are a lot of people who are feeling against this, but has digital been a good way to build community and expand Kripalu beyond the physical space?
0: Yeah, we have. Uh, we're reaching people in all states and in 60 countries around the world that never would have been able to access the, the medicine that Kripalu brings to the world. So from an accessibility point of view, it's fantastic. And yeah, it's here to stay for us. It's not going to take over, but it's a compliment to what we do.
1: You spent a lot of time in India. You grew up in Ireland. What is one of the biggest challenges we faced here in the West based on your travels and upbringing abroad?
0: We've forgotten that we're brothers and sisters and there's all the, all the resources in this world for everybody thrive and we are not sharing them. That is not just causing suffering for those that don't have. It's causing suffering for those that have too. Powerful.
2: You are about to become a dual citizen. First, huge congratulations. And second, why was this so important to you and what does it mean
0: now in your life? The Whisper brought me to America and it can feel very easy in my position to be sort of distant to America emotionally. And I wanted to make a deeper commitment to this land, particularly, so that my work here can feel like it has the deepest level of commitment. Robert,
2: thank you for holding this space, for being a leader who is inviting change, who is holding a completely different conversation with your people in your organization, with the people who love Kripalu and introducing the world to Kripalu. And thank you for having this kind of a conversation with us, making it safe to bring love to work and talking about that we don't have all the answers as leaders and as teams, and we can build beautiful furniture while the whole world (laughs) is changing around us. Robert, Nate and
1: I love you. We love you, man. (laughs) We love you, Robert. Love you both too. Now tell us where, other than Krupalu.org, where can people
0: find you? And learn more about what you're up to. Best place to probably find me is LinkedIn, and I just find my profile there. Yeah, happy to chat to anybody that wants to talk about anything. It's a collective effort to make the world a more beautiful place. Thank you for joining
2: us on this journey. In a world where attention is scarce and content is abundant, it means a lot. To learn more about this episode, go to disruptedwork.com forward slash podcast where you can find show notes and key details about the episode, our guests, and how to connect with us. Our website also contains additional resources for learning, including our future work mindset model and action plan. The best way you can support the Disrupted Workforce is to subscribe to our show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. To help others thrive in the future of work, spread the word by rating and reviewing the podcast and sharing your favorite episodes with the people you care about. Disrupt yourself to unlock your future.